The path to success is rarely a straight line. And the path to success as a creative professional? That line tends to be especially squiggly. My name is Emmeline. I'm an independent recording artist, a singer-songwriter, a published author, and a lifelong creative. In my new series, Journey of an Artist, I talk to creatives from all walks of life about their passions, their paths, and the persistence they've employed to reach a point of professional and personal fulfillment. Throughout my journey, I've been blessed to interact with all kinds of artists, voice actors, poets, dancers, musicians, graphic designers, stylists, and more. In Journey of an Artist, we discuss the decisions they've made, the challenges they've faced, the obstacles they've overcome, and where they'd like their vision to take them next. We also reinforce the belief that with love, grit, perseverance, and an abundance of joy, anything is possible. You can live the life you want, the life that brings you the most joy, and my guests are living proof. This week, my guest is published writer and McDowell resident, Rachel Warecki, a graduate of Scripps College in Claremont, California, and an alumna of Antioch University's MFA program. Rachel balances a successful career as a fiction writer with a day job in marketing. She's here today to talk about her novel, tentatively titled The Split Decision, her time as a writer in residence, and the messy process of creativity as a career. Welcome back to Journey of an Artist. I'm your host, Emmeline, and I am here today with the immensely talented writer, Rachel Rowecki. How are you doing? I am doing all right. Thank you, Emmeline, so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you um, are, you're fresh off a residency. And I am. you've got all sorts of cool things going on. And we're just going to talk about your journey. I'm, I'm excited about it. So you just came off the McDowell residency. Can you tell me a little bit about how it sort of transpired for you? Yeah, so um, it, it's actually kind of a funny story. I, in January 2020, I decided that I was in a good place to apply to residencies. I had been to uh, the Ragdale residency in 2018 and I had written the first draft of a novel there. So I was looking up where I was with that novel and I thought um, that it would be a good point for me to take the time and space at another residency. So I decided to apply to McDowell, which is the oldest residency for artists of all disciplines um, in the United States. And it's a fairly competitive one. So I sent in my application, you know, just thinking I'll send it in. And if it happens, great. But I wasn't really expecting anything mm-hmm. you know, to come of it. As with so much in the literary world, the acceptance to rejection ratio can be, you know, not many acceptances, many rejections. It's part of that life. So on March 11th, 2020, <laughs> which is the day that everything started shutting down, at least in, in California, which is where I live. Um, you know, we're dealing with all of that. And then at lunchtime, I check my email and it, congratulations, you got in. And I almost fell out of my chair. I was so surprised and grateful. But with the pandemic approaching, then two days later, it was like, hold up, you know, we're still figuring things out on their end. So very long story short, Um, I didn't actually get to attend until September 2021 um, because of different restrictions, safety levels, their rescheduling process. But I ultimately ended up going for three weeks. It's in New Hampshire. 
in this lovely wooded area, every artist gets their own studio according to their discipline and um, maybe deer hung out and frolicked in the meadow. And it was just a very peaceful, serene place to spend time with other artists. There were composers, there were visual artists, uh, there were all different types of writers, um, not just fiction writers. And, you know, I walked away, I came away with a sense that the dedication that all these artists had to their craft was really, really incredible. And it just reinforced the idea that um, there sometimes there's nothing that causes more, you know, consternation and self-doubt and, and kind of a zigzag journey and fear and anxiety and, and relief and exhilaration than artwork and its final product that looks effortless. We got to talk you know, people had open studios where they presented their work and then they talked about their process and learning about the different processes in different disciplines was so incredible because it all took such hard work and such diligence and then it would come out looking beautiful and effortless and funny and wise. So it was a really important lesson that even things that look easy can be really, really hard to do, which I think is all of art. Absolutely. And what a great reminder. I think so often as artists, we steep in the difficulty of our own process. Mm-hmm. And then we see the finished product of everyone else's process. And we're like, what am I doing wrong? Why is this so easy for these people and so hard for me? So it sounds like a really validating moment to get to sit with other artists in their messiness. Yes. And it was also a great I feel, especially during the pandemic, that virtually I spent most of my time connecting with other writers, and it reminded me of the importance of engaging with other disciplines and how inspiring that can be to my own work, even if I don't know a lot about those other disciplines or just spending time with them. It was very empowering to my own process. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So when you were there, who else was there? What other kinds of art did you get to witness? So we had a couple of composers. They're doing some amazing work. Uh, There was a philosopher who has a book coming out in May about how to live authentically, exploring the life of Simone de Beauvoir. There was a freelance journalist there who's working on a book about the desegregation of private schools in the South in the 60s. There was a poet who was working on a memoir, um, a visual artist who was working on kind of still lifes, but looking at them from a kind of different angle, sometimes literally the way he displayed his canvases were not just traditionally on the wall, but like at angles that people would have to engage with them in, in new ways. That was kind of interesting. A cartoonist working on a series of books about life, Jewish life in New York in the turn of the 20th century. So just, yeah, all... And I feel uh, documentarians, there were, you know, three or four documentarians there, including one whose documentary just came out. It's called Ascension. Um, and it's it's been getting a lot of praise from critics and at film festivals. Um, but it looks at uh, capitalism in China. I'm actually going to go see it tomorrow night. <laughs> with oh, the, that's the awesome. Yeah. So, so yes, um, hopefully I did a great job of promoting everybody else's work at McDowell, but it was all amazing. And um that's that's actually one of the things I like to do most is when I encounter wonderful work to to let other people know about it because that can be part of that zigzag journey, you know, is spreading the word. So yeah. Absolutely. You get experience of that in your daily life as well because you work in marketing. 
I do. And um, one of the really cool things about my job is I get to talk to a lot of faculty members and learn about what they do and what they're researching and what they're studying. Mm-hmm. And I am somebody who just always loves learning. So it's it's really interdisciplinary in, in that respect. I'm really glad that I also have in my day job this, this wonderful opportunity to learn and grow from scientists and from people working in the visual arts and media studies and languages and the humanities and history. So a lot of artists talk about like the need for a day job and different artists approach it in different ways. There are artists who have you know, the day job that doesn't take a lot of mental energy so that they can go home and be their most creative selves. And, you know, for me, that's something I think that wouldn't work very well. I think I would get, I don't know, restless in in that kind of position. So I really enjoy having a job that gets to engage my intellectual and emotional self um, and artistic self in a different way, even though I've got like when I get my marketing hat on. Well, and your writing is very character focused. You dig a lot into the depth of the people you present in your work. And I think that you paint these really complex pictures of characters. And it sounds like some of that for you is inspired by the people you get to encounter in your job and your outside life, just because you you dig more deeply into the nuances of those people and what they're doing. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, as we're talking about this, uh, Ben Percy well, I went to, I've been to the Tin House Writers Workshop twice in 2011 and 2015. And Ben Percy was at them both and he gave a talk that eventually became an essay in his craft book, Thrilled Me. And the topic of the talk um, is called Get a Job. And it's not, it's not advice to writers um, to go out and get jobs, but it talks about the importance of being in the outside world and how that can add realism to your fiction. Because I've been a writer while holding a day job and there was also a period of time while I was writing but did not have a day job um, due to some ongoing medical stuff. So, you know, I did get a lot of writing done (laughs) during that time, but it did feel almost, it's tough to describe. There was that detachment. It started to feel like there was this kind of increasingly opaque wall between me and the world. Um, If I wanted to, I could have just like sat in my apartment and never gone out and just written all day. But that would, that I would, I would lose touch with the way people moved and talked. And actually, (laughs) you know, during the pandemic, that was one of my big stumbling blocks is it's like, well, what gestures, one, one of my weaknesses as a writer is that if I'm writing a first draft of something, my characters shrug at each other a lot. Like that's my, apparently my go-to gesture for when I need like a character to do something. Um, and, and so it's people just kind of like shrugging at each other. Um, and I was like, I forget what other gestures people make, you know, being alone in my apartment during the pandemic. What do people do? And, and I'm somebody who tends to write the dialogue in a scene first. Mm-hmm. So all of that is to say, you know, yes, a lot of character comes from me experiencing the world. Um, but it's because I, I try to pay attention to what people say and how are they saying it and what experiences am Am I listening to what experiences have I been a part of, you know, and, and you know, how do, how do people talk to each other? How do they fight? How do they, you know, all the different ways that characters can interact. So yeah, being out in the world, at least for me, is a really important part of the process because otherwise you get stories involving a lot of shrugging. <laughs> 
yes, everybody has their like their crutch phrase or their crutch scene, especially when you write dialogue first and you have to fill in the background, mm-hmm. like fill in the environment, fill in the noise, fill in the environment wherever they are. Yeah, it can be easy to fall into the he said, she said trap. So let's back up. You've okay. been a writer for a really long time. You've talked about things you did in 2011, 2015, 2017. And then recently, you know, you had the McDowell residency, but that wasn't your first residency. You had done quite a few others as well. When did you start writing seriously? I, I feel like in some ways I've always kind of been a serious writer. I started reading at an early age. You know, it was really a privilege to have parents who were able to, you know, help me do that. <laughs> and and sit and read and who've been supportive so yeah I think I just started writing stories for myself when I was seven but in terms and you know I wrote big I got really influenced by whatever I was reading at the time so in high school I wrote a lot of like very long epic fantasies that you know like those are lost to the computer and they can stay that way oh no <laughs> uh, you know it was, it was in high school um but I think college is when I really, really started getting the idea that people beyond, you know, my family and friends and people who had, you know, they liked me. And so they were going to say nice things about me regardless and be supportive like family and, and friends should. But when I was in college, I won the Crombie Allen Award. We both went to, to Scripps. Um, so that's the award that's given to the best work of creative writing in the year. And so I won it as a first year and then I won it as a senior. And it was it flipped that light switch of, you know, this is something that it's not, I just don't, like, it's not just me who thinks it has worth and and quality, you know, outside forces who don't know me agree. And so since then, I've always tried to make space and time for writing in my life. When I was, at, when I graduated from college, I did Teach for America, um, which took up a lot a lot of time. Towards the end of my first year, I realized that I was feeling very adrift without that writing in my life. And so I signed up to take courses at UCLA Extension. And then I did that for a while. And then I got my MFA. And then, yeah, I mean, I think just really since 2005. So, oh my goodness, 16 years. Um, (laughs) I know. I know how that goes. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I still don't have a, I've, I've published short stories. I've, I've been to residencies. I've been to workshops for an emerging writer. I would say I have a pretty strong CV, but if you had told me at 25 that I would be just because of the length of the time publishing process takes like at the earliest 37 or 38, by the time, like a full length book work comes out. And that's if the novel I'm working on now, like has legs and goes anywhere, you know, um, I wouldn't have believed you. I had would have thought that it would have happened sooner, but it just, it hasn't. I feel like I've gotten closer, (laughs) but you know, for, for, I I still don't have a book length workout, which is fine, but it it, it has been a long road. I love that you mentioned that. I was talking offline with another artist about actually a fellow Scripsy, Sarah Gore, who was on the podcast. And we were talking about how the creative industries can be so difficult because the benchmark we set ourselves for success is what the top 1% of 1% achieves. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I work pretty prominently in the music industry and right. I, you know, I get, I have this incredible honor that I get super excited about, about voting in the Grammys every year, which is super cool. Um, But I think that there's this myth that that's the pinnacle of like, that that's success as a musician and anything less than a record that hits the top 10 of the billboard charts or sells a million copies or 
catapults you into the final round of Grammy nominations is a failure or is you failing to reach the goal you've set for yourself? Sarah works prominently in film. Hmm. And, you know, she talked about the same thing, about how there's this myth that if you don't achieve success in some sort of major motion picture by a major film company, you've somehow failed to reach your mark. And I think I hear you talking about not having a full length novel size workout, but your list of publications is huge. Like you've published short stories in, you know, the Master's Review, Hypertext, Midwestern Gothic, like all of these places, Coachella Review, Lost Balloon, Drunk Monkeys, like all of these places have highlighted your work. You won these awards at Scripps. And I think it's crazy to me hearing other artists talk about those accomplishments as though, you know, they're they're not quite where you thought you'd be because to me that sounds like a great list, but I do that to myself in my industry. <laughs> and I think it's fascinating that we've landed ourselves jobs in these places where we sort of belittle our own accomplishments because they're not what other people might think of as success in our industry. Mm-hmm. But you do have a novel that you're working on. Yes, yes. It, it's funny, this is... I'm really excited about it. It's been fun to write. And it was kind of, you know, talking about the zigzag of the journey. I think part of it for me is that for a long, long time, I felt that I had to be very, very literary Mm -hmm. in my output. When what I really, really love reading as well as writing is mysteries. And yeah, so it took me a while to realize that like, I didn't have to write literary fiction. I could write a mystery that was just a straight, you know, procedural mystery without having to cloak it in some of these like literary fiction trappings and to just set out to have fun writing something that would be fun to read. And it's been really interesting how people have responded so positively in a way that I don't think any of the of the literary stuff I've put out as short stories has gotten this level of. So this this particular novel, you know, at the moment titled The Split Decision, it was a finalist in the 2019 Craft First Chapters Prize. It was what I submitted to McDowell. It got me into the Bookends Fellowship. It, it, it's opened a lot of doors for me in a way that when I was in my MFA program, I never thought a mystery novel could open those kind of doors because I thought I had to be very literary. Mm-hmm. And so I am very excited about it. I am working really, really hard on revisions. You know, I have a timeline that I would like to keep to, and I'm hoping that by next summer, I can start the process of querying agents, um, which is a whole nother business process on, you know, that side of writing, the the agent finding and the publishing house finding and, and that. And then from that novel manuscript, I also wrote a short story that is going to be coming out in spring 2022 in uh, Made in LA anthology. And it's also a crime story um, set in this same alternate universe world, which very, very quickly, uh, 1947, alternate universe Los Angeles, in which there are more women than men. So there are more women in positions of power. And then um, California is on the verge of a secession vote. So that's the alternate universe in which this mystery is set. And those things both have bearing on the mystery itself. So that's been fun and there's been a lot of research involved. So so that's what the novel's about and the story's set in the same world. And I'm also, you know, in between revision drafts, I'm rough drafting the sequel. Um, so I'm really hoping that this has legs because I'm spending a lot of time in this universe. Um, but, you know, 
uh, it is what it is, so we shall see. But before we move on to the next question, um, you brought up a really great point about these these things that these goals that so many of us across disciplines say that oh you know you know it, it, these arbitrary standards that we hold ourselves to and I think it's really important to note that as we're talking about like the non-straightforwardness um, which is not a word probably of, of these artistic journeys is that mm-hmm. you know there are so many people whose journeys are not straightforward or stopped or paused or put on a hiatus or never realized because of all these systemic gatekeeping whether it's through race or class or ability um, or all the other isms that there are ways you know things beyond people's control and that's you know I have been very lucky um, in terms of you know benefiting from my race and class about the opportunities that I've gotten but there are also other things in my life that have I've had to put things on hold for a while because of illness or or things of that nature and so I think as we're talking about these things and these barriers and and reflecting on why journeys are not straightforward that you know it's important to acknowledge that and also that there are organizations out there that are trying to work and be more equitable and so um, I was on the leadership team for five years of an organization called Women Who Submit, which is an organization that works to help increase representation of women and non-binary writers in uh, literary magazines in particular. So it really encourages women and non-binary writers to submit their work to those places that will get them seen, but also to rethink which literary journals are in their minds top tier. Because even within, you know, as you were talking about like the Grammys and the Oscars and book length work, Mm -hmm. you know, even when we're talking about literary journals it's like okay I've had a lot of work out there but I've never been in the Paris Review I've never been in the Atlantic I've never been you know these yeah and so one of the great things that Women Who Submit does is asks writers to reconfigure you know maybe maybe you don't want to be in the Paris Review maybe you for you your top tier is to be in literary journals that really you know work to represent women and non-binary writers or writers of disabilities or people of color you know maybe that's the top tier for you so really asking you know and encouraging writers to rethink those gatekeepers and rethink those gateways and careers and it embraces that and and one of the things that the organization does is puts up on social media every month a rejection brag Mm. where people can post like I just got a rejection from so-and-so magazine you know to acknowledge that that's part of the process so that that response kind of went all over the place but I feel like there's so much and Women Who Submit for any writers out there has chapters across the United States um, and in some other countries as well. You can go on their website, womenwhosubmit.org, and it has a list of chapters. So if that's something that any writers out there are interested in, that's definitely an organization that's been really meaningful to me over over the past you know five years, founded by 31 of Color. Um, it's it's just a fantastic organization. So briefly, for our friends who are listening on the radio, it's womenwhosubmitlit.org. That's women who submit and then lit lit.org and for those of you who are listening on a podcast you can just scroll up and we'll have the link there so you can go ahead and click so if you are a female writer who is looking for a way to get your work seen heard and well received this is a great place to go to get the encouragement that you need and to find the opportunities that best fit you i love that you highlight the importance of sort of retooling your idea of success or retooling those benchmarks. We, we grew up with this belief that there are certain gatekeepers 
and every industry and that you have to receive acknowledgement from the gatekeepers in order to get some sort of feeling of validity and that we need that encouragement to believe that what we're putting out into the world has value. And I think that there is something to be said for external validation. There's something to be said for having people tell you who are not your friends and family, right? Hey, you're good at this. Mm -hmm. You should keep doing it. That can be extraordinarily rewarding and encouraging and beautiful. But if you don't have that yet, it doesn't mean that what you're doing is not important. Mm -hmm. And if if you've gotten rejection from people that you perceive to be gatekeepers, that also doesn't mean that what you're doing is not important. You might not have found the right venue. You might have gotten an editor on the wrong day. Elizabeth Gilbert tells this great story in Big Magic that she had a story that was rejected and then accepted later. And initially it was rejected and I, I think there was some arbitrary comment given like, oh, this doesn't have you know quite what we're looking for. Or, I don't like stories with this. And then later, after she had published Eat, Pray, Love, the same organization was like, oh, no, this is great. We loved it. We thought it was fantastic. And that gets to exactly what you're talking about, how there are barriers that often we're not aware of or we don't perceive that can affect how our work is received. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Like even beyond the, the systemic issues in the industry, you know, what you said is exactly right is sometimes you just get an editor on a bad day. Um, sometimes you just get the wrong reader for your work. Yeah, it can be you. The process is so opaque sometimes that you don't know. You don't <laughs> you don't know. Sometimes editors will send you what we call a personal rejection, where they have a little note that goes with the, the form rejection they sent out through Submittable that says, you know, we really like this and this, you know, this, this piece as a whole was not right for us, but please try us again. And these are the these are the things that we did like. So that can be encouraging as well to know if you're on the right track. But also, also, again, acknowledging that, you know, if you don't want to write toward those things, then that that's equally valid. And that should also be celebrated. And yes, all of all of the things I mentioned before. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You should get joy from those things. Yeah. So we talked a little bit offline about things that you've incorporated into your daily life that enable you to write the way you want to towards the goals. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of those daily habits and about how you've established those and about what the negotiation of that looks like for you? Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I've been doing lately over the past year plus is committing to writing every day. And sometimes that's just a sentence or half a sentence, but that counts. And, and I have a tracker and I check it off when it is done for the day. Um, so I started this and I didn't start it on any like particularly meaningful day. October 10th, 2020 was the day that the streak started. And then the streak went on long enough that I, um, I used to play a lot of sports. And so I'm very competitive and I don't play any sports anymore, but I'm still competitive. So now I'm just competitive, like with myself. And so I was like, oh, I can't stop the streak now. The streak has to keep going. And so, you know, it's kept going. It's the energizer body of streaks now. It's going and going and going. And, and now it's been over a year, just, you know, earlier this month. 365 days uh, consecutively of writing. And as I mentioned before, you know, sometimes I don't have time. Sometimes I have a very busy day at work. Sometimes I have a migraine, you know, and, and spend most of the day lying in the bed in bed or on the floor. But, you know, it just as long as I get a sentence 
it sometimes the sentence is a really bad sentence sometimes the sentence is i shrugged <laughs> because all my characters shrug uh, but it's a sentence and so you know for example this past august was a really busy one at my job we were preparing for students to come back to campus i was preparing to go away to mcdowell it was just a lot of time being taken up between work and the things i was doing in my personal life to get ready and so you know august was a month of you know just a sentence a day but at the end of that month that was 31 more sentences than I had had at the beginning of August. So it adds up. And over the past year of writing every day, that's added up to be a draft and a half of this novel I'm working on. You know, the short story that's in the anthology, that's about 4,000 words, uh, two essays that added up to like 8,000 words and 25,000 words of the first draft of the novel sequel, which is a lot. That's, that's a lot. And I would not have expected there to be that many words at the end of the year with my many days of like, here's a sense. So I think the biggest thing is, and I used to, it took me a very, very long time to realize that writing doesn't have to happen just under the ideal conditions. I used to believe that like, I really could only make time to write if I had two or three hours and that would give me time to get into my groove and then the writing would be good. And then in 2016, at my previous job, things were incredibly, incredibly busy. Um, we had a measure on the local ballot that was very, very important to the future of my workplace. And so I was working 12 hour days, 18 hour days, I was working weekends, and no writing was getting done at all. And I realized if I don't carve out time, like I'm not going to get these two or three hour blocks. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a part of my lunch hour and like, that's going to be my writing time. And it may only be 20 minutes, but it's 20 minutes of writing, or I'm going to write like in this little bit before work or this little bit, you know, right before I go to bed. And so that that incredible busyness really broke me of this precious idea that writing had to happen in these chunks of time. And so I would say in terms of like practical steps, always having a notebook on me um, so that if, you know, I'm at work and something comes up, I can just jot it down and then stick the note back back in my bag. You know, if I'm waiting at the doctor's office, if I'm waiting in line, if, you know, all these little moments where otherwise you'd just be like scrolling on your phone, use it to jot down an idea. And I, having ideas is part of writing. Um, yeah, so, so writing in short spurts. Um, I know people who like do 10 minute sprints mm. um, where it's like, okay, there's this 10 minutes and they're going to write for 10 minutes and that's their writing you know, having the tools always in case it comes up. Yeah. And then I, I, I will say that writing wise, you know, I do not, I don't have a partner. I don't have kids. Um, so there are, I, I don't have pets. So when I'm not at work, my time is my own for the most part, which is, is something that other folks who have partners or kids or pets can't always say. But I also do know people in those situations who use similar methods to keep the writing going. They write at their kids' soccer practices or, you know, um, they always have the notebook. Um, yeah. So I would say if I could give, you know, two big takeaways is always have your notebook and find the little moments. Even if it's, you know, if you think you need two hours to write, convince yourself that you only need five minutes. Yeah, it sounds like it really adds up in a meaningful way. We had Austin Sora on the show who talked, she's a Broadway dancer, who talked briefly about planting seeds and how as we're doing these things, we don't always realize what's going to bear fruit. 
We don't always know which plants are going to sprout, but you Mm -hmm. have to have the faith that planting the seed has value and that when that sprout is supposed to come up, it will. And I hear you saying the same thing about writing. Like if you can just dedicate part of your day, even if it's five minutes of your day, even if it's that one moment in line at the bathroom, at Starbucks, that you can jot down two sentences and be like, okay, even if one of them is I shrugged. You know, (laughs) you you have that moment where you've done something meaningful for you. You've continued that streak that Mm -hmm. may or may not be a fruit, but you have to have faith that just the act of doing that is enough to plant the seed that keeps you going. And I will say, I've read so many times, you know, that I can't attribute it to just one writer, but people saying, you know, there are many, many writers who have talent that they never end up with a book deal or a short story because they have talent, but they don't, they don't necessarily persevere for whatever reason. And again, some of those things are systemic, which should be remedied, but there are also people who just a lot of talent and so they figure they can just like you know maybe like I used to you know figure I could just oh I'll write whenever and it didn't matter that you know weeks or months would go by or or people stop submitting or their work and you know so many writers have said it's not the talent that leads to success it's the perseverance so again you know some of that can be challenged in a variety of ways you know not everybody has the time and resources to persevere in ways that some demographics have over others, but it's part of that process is the persevering, you know, in those tiny increments of time when you have it. Yeah, it sounds like so much of it for you and for the writers with whom you're in community is the discipline to just write every day or Mm -hmm. the discipline to just keep generating content, even Mm -hmm. if it's not great content, to stay in the habit of content generation. Mm -hmm. So that that muscle is flexed every single day in a way that enables you when you have that two or three hour stretch to not have to spend the time making your precious environment where you dim the lights a certain amount you take your computer to the one special corner that gives you the best inspiration and you have to wait for the light to hit the computer screen just right. You know, all of those things that we trick ourselves into thinking have the ultimate value that Mm -hmm. it's combating those stories we tell ourselves so that we're able to tell people more important stories. Right. Emphasize that it took me until I was in my thirties to figure this out for myself. So if you're not there yet, you know, fret not, you know, and maybe, maybe and writing every day is not for everyone. You know, my, what works for me, you know, there's no one size fits all. There are people who legitimately for various reasons, like there have been times in my life when I have just needed breaks, you know, and, and I, wouldn't if that happened again I would not beat myself I mean I would beat myself up a little bit because that's just the way my brain works but um you know and like I said I'm competitive with myself and I've got the streak that I'm, I'm very vested in now um but you know the, the balance is is the self-care um and part of why I'm able to keep going is that for me writing feels like self-care during a pandemic there were people who couldn't write during the pandemic and like I get it you know that it was it was just one more thing that put pressure on them. And and if writing feels like pressure to you, like don't add that pressure to yourself. Um, but if you're someone for whom writing feels like self-care and, and like a thing that helps keep you grounded um, during the worst of the pandemic, when I wasn't really living my apartment unit even, that helped keep me grounded and, and connected and able to keep on emotionally. Um, So if you are 
someone for who at this moment in time writing feels like that, um, writing every day might be a helpful practice. Um, if writing feels like a burden at this moment in time for you, you know, that's, it would probably not be a helpful practice. But I, th I think finding that part where it becomes, like you said, you know, that muscle memory, that habit, I think can be important. You know, again, with, with all of this, I'm not trying to tell, I anyone how to do the writing, you know, for their best selves, but that I will say it's what has really helped me. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I love that you highlight the writing can sometimes feel like a burden. But I yeah. think there's also, I think it's important for us as artists to separate the notion of the writing as a burden from the mm -hmm. pressure we put on ourselves to write as a burden. Mm -hmm. Because I yeah, don't know yeah. about you, but for me, those are different, but I sometimes confuse them. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know if I am, you know, far enough along in my journey to be able to separate those out as well, as well as you can. Um, that's something I think I'm still working on. But the part of me that works in marketing, I think, is also very cognizant. If like if I were if I were to make it big, if I were to get a book deal, if I were to be one of those authors that, you know, because there are some authors who put out a book every two years um, and that's, that's part of the contract. And so I think part of my, my inclination towards productivity in this manner um, is that I want to be able to always be putting my best work out there. And so that means keeping things up and keeping things going, you know, so that, so that I'm not scrambling to write something at the last minute. Again, I will say this is how I've approached many of my long-term projects when I was in college rather than, you know, I was not somebody who could write an essay two days before it was due. I was like, okay, here's here's the syllabus. Here's the deadline for this project. I'm going to start this now and I'm going to work a little bit every day so that I didn't get overwhelmed. Um, so yeah, it was, it was that kind of diligence, that kind of like habit, that kind of, you know, I'm somebody who needs the small chunks as opposed to the like, oh my God, um, you know, 30,000 words in a month. I could never, I've tried to do National Novel Writing Month and it just, yeah. Not your it's thing? Not no, it, it's, um, I fall into bad habits, bad writing habits. Yeah. But there are some people for whom it works fantastically um, and more power to those people, but I am not one of them. But I want to highlight that for people because, again, we have these myths, right? These like mm -hmm. mythical benchmarks that we create for ourselves. And I think it is so easy in the creative industries, especially to tell ourselves that we have failed to achieve said benchmark. So we have failed, mm -hmm. period. Yes. Coming back from that kind of personal discouragement is so hard. So if you're listening and you haven't been able to complete National Novel Writing Month, know that A, you're not alone. Rachel is right there with you. And B, you don't need that to achieve success in your field. You can get the residencies. You can get the publications without spitting out 50,000 words in a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I highly encourage people to like think about what would success look like for them? You know, what communities are they writing toward? You know, who, who are the audiences they're writing for? What kind of stories do you want to tell? And, and trying, and I know, I, I know it's hard. I am the person who still was like, ideally, I would love somebody to give me an anchor award. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am not, I am not, which is, which is the mystery writers award. You know, right. like I am not immune to these external markers of success. You know, I don't think anyone is I mean maybe there's some people who are and, and girl that is great. I'm, like, um, I'm holding well, the Grammy ballot right now I'm not immune either <laughs> right there with you but yeah it, it, it's a journey it's a journey yeah I love that I mean obviously we talked offline about how the premise of the show is just that success is not a straight line 
and then mm-hmm. there are stops and starts and there are confusing moments of self-doubt and there are you know moments where circumstances intervene in a way where you can't move towards your goals or your craft in a way that feels good to you mm-hmm. but but I think that what I hear you saying is that that's where perseverance really matters is that deep-seated understanding that it's not going to be a straight line and that's mm-hmm. okay that it's mm-hmm. not going to be a continuous glorious beautiful path that has been laid for you in clear concise ways where you can follow along and feel confident that you're moving in the right direction that sometimes you do feel a little lost at sea and -hmm. sometimes you're not really sure that what you're doing matters but that it's the act of pushing through those moments the act of Mm -hmm. really committing yourself to working through that and and I will say you know I want to underscore again that like finding your community, whomever and whatever that looks like, you know, finding those people who understand what you're doing and how you need to move toward that and then can support you in those ways. And it may not look like that standard path, but finding what perseverance looks like to you and to your community. Um, You know, sometimes perseverance in the writing life looks like, you know, you may not have written, but like you survived another day. That's worth celebrating as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes going through, you know, some of the medical stuff I've gone through, it's like, yeah, that's, that's a victory. So um, yeah. Yeah. And I love that you highlight the worth of celebrating that as an accomplishment with a community. It sounds like you've been able to find, I mean, obviously you run the leadership team for women who submit. So this is something to which you're extraordinarily dedicated is not only generating content yourself, but helping other women find their voice and really step into their power as writers. How did you find a writing community that felt good and encouraging to you? So, I mean, a lot of, I will say that the best thing from my MFA program was coming out of it, emerging from it with community and having it be diverse community, having it be, you know, women from many different circumstances and backgrounds, you know, coming together in that through that community is where I really started to find the community in Los Angeles. I'm originally from LA. I went to college in the LA area. Um, I worked in LA after graduation, I'm, but I really didn't start to find that, <laughs> that literary community until I went to grad school and graduated and people, alumni were were saying, well, come to this, or have you been to this reading series? Or like, we're going to go watch this reader we admire, give their reading, or so-and-so's book just came out and we want to go and support them. Um, And it it just is this culture of we show up for each other, um, which I think is important. And sometimes that's... um, I'm apparently very good at motivating people to write just by sitting and writing. Apparently I get this like very intense and serious look on my face. So like I had a friend who was sitting and writing with me and she was like, oh yeah, I was, you know, on Facebook and I was going to say something to you. And I looked up and you were like, and I was like, oh, oh, I better get to writing. Um, So apparently my face is a great motivator. Fantastic. Um, Yeah. But even if it's just community showing up for community and that comes like I really want to go write um and it would be nice to have company doing that a lot of what I do socially involves going in someplace you know now that now that we can move a little bit more freely going someplace with another writer and sitting down and like chatting and catching up and then writing or I have another friend who hosts every week virtual for two hours zoom writing on Monday nights and whoever's available shows up 
and we write and sometimes we set goals and sometimes we're just like, I'm going to be writing. And then at the end of the two hours, we, we log back on and give each other the thumbs up and we've written and ta-da. So um, it's a lot of that perseverance and community and, and community building has been a gradual process over the course of the past eight years now it's been since I graduated um but really it's it's the more you go out into these spaces the more you meet people and I'm also not somebody who's shy about like let's hang out like let's (laughs) yeah so yeah Yeah, you were very good about responding to my message where I was like Rachel come on the podcast come talk to us about all the cool things you're doing I mean it doesn't matter if I haven't seen you in a while like I I, yeah it's It's like the hazard of of there being a pandemic and us living 1500 miles away that's so beautiful though I love that you highlight that it takes time to build community Mm -hmm. and that there's no right way to do it it's not like you have to follow a formula it's not like you guys have to have like a three-hour writing party where you all bring your laptops no although sometimes that happens But, um, (laughs) but I will say, you know, the counterbalance to that is to be, you know, authentic and genuine in your community building. Like I am not somebody who is out there being like, oh, this person could, could do something or like this person would be a good person to know. I like their work. And so I'm going to go say hi, and I'm going to show up for the things that they're at and say hi again. (laughs) um, I'm not building connections in that networking sense. I'm trying to build friendships because I like having friends. I love my friends. Girl, yes. Well, and there's an authenticity to showing up as you are, meeting other people as they are and saying, hey, it looks like we're both trying to do this cool thing. Let's try to do it together and cheer each Mm -hmm. other on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, both of us went to Scripps College and I think Mm -hmm. that was one of the things and probably continues to be one of the things at which Scripps really excels. Yes. Creating a community of women who aren't there to compete with each other, who aren't there to network, but who are genuinely there to celebrate each other's accomplishments, cheer each other on and just get excited about the cool things that all these amazing women are doing in the world. Oh, yeah. One (laughs) hundred percent. I think that there are a lot of toxic spaces where women Mm -hmm. are forced systematically Mm -hmm. to compete with each other. Mm -hmm. But Scripps was not that. Yeah. And I will say that since leaving Scripps, a lot of these uh, powerful communities have been with other women and other non-binary, you know, non-binary writers and and just in those communities, women of color and women with disabilities. It's, again, you know, pushing back against that, competing against each other and and trying to to celebrate each other. And, And part of that is at least for me, is when opportunities come along. When I succeed in something, I always try to turn around and try to like then pass on that opportunity to somebody else. Um, so when I got back from Ragdale residency, I you know told people, I'm like, I don't know if it gives more weight to have uh, somebody who's been to the residency write the reference letter that's part of the application. But it's like, you know, for people who I know whose work I admire, it's like, I will be that reference for you. That's or, awesome. you know, if there are contests coming up that the topic matter of the writing contests uh, reminds me of somebody whose work I know I'm like hey have you heard of this you should submit to this or I'm submitting to this you should submit too so it's like yeah in that in that contest we are literally going to be competing against each other but you know what 
I don't care. You know, if if somebody, there was a contest that I entered a couple of months ago that I had let another friend know about and like, I didn't advance, but she did. And that's fantastic. Like that makes me feel so much better about the fact that I didn't advance because someone I know, you know, is having that success and that's fantastic. And yeah. So the other part of that, you know, building community is sharing those resources and, and letting people know about opportunities that they may not have heard of. And then supporting them as best as you can and helping them get to those opportunities. So like I said, I'm a big believer in being a reference for people, like writing those reference letters and being like, hey, you don't know me. And you may not know this person I'm recommending, but they're great. I love that. I think that's so beautiful and so important and just really drives home that idea that there is more than one place at the mountaintop. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? it, it, it shouldn't be a mountaintop. It should be a, a mesa or a plateau. There you go. Yeah. Let's get as many people on there as possible. I mean, your CV is a great demonstration of this. To propel yourself to a point where you have whatever kind of authority you need, it takes cobbling together successes, mm-hmm. whatever those are, however those look. And it sounds like you're no stranger to, like, obviously you're no stranger to the publication process because you've gone through that a number of times. But it sounds like you're also no stranger to the rejection process. So many rejections. <laughs> so many rejections. You know, the, the the same season in which I applied to McDowell, there was another residency applied to that I didn't get into. You know, for every, you know, there was a piece that eventually you know, ultimately it was published because it had won a writing contest, but it had been rejected by so, 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 so many places before it won that contest. There was a novel that I worked on for eight years before this one that I queried and it never got anywhere. And, you know, I trumped it. It's dead now. It's, um, it resides only on my computer. I'm okay with that though. Like I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, cause it's part of the process and, you know, it, it's, I learned, I learned and grew as a writer working on that novel so that I could turn to work on my current novel and take what I learned about the process. Part of what I learned is that like, I'm just going to write a mystery <laughs> and to create this novel that more people are excited about. I try to, you know, now that I am older and still competitive, but maybe less than I used to be, you know, try to use all these rejections as learning experiences. And sometimes the learning experience is like, okay, this place has rejected me like 10 times. Maybe this is not the right outlet for my work. Maybe I should stop banging my head against this particular wall. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there are, are, I have a list of places that I've just, that I've, said, okay, like, you know, they're not for me. And it's maybe, you know, it's not about me. It's not, it's, it's, there's just not that. Um, Chemistry fit, right? Not the right fit, you know? Yeah. yeah. And and so I think that's, that's part of the rejection process too, is, is if you can see it as a learning experience, as opposed to like getting, getting grumpy about it. Although, you know, there are times I've gotten grumpy when, when people misspell my name, it's like, it's right there in the email. <laughs> Yes, um, I feel like that's one of those details that as a professor, I'm always like, don't spell someone's name. Yeah. Always have a greeting. Be professional in your communication. But I think, yeah, to your point, it really, it sounds like it is as educational as it can be discouraging. And if you mm-hmm. focus on the educational aspects of it, it's easier to get through the discouragement. Yes. And and I will say, because I feel like this has made me sound like, oh, you know, I am so, I'm so wise. I'm so calm about this, but like, I've definitely had times in my life where I've received like 
rejection letters in the mail from those publications that for a very long time were not doing anything online and I burned them. <laughs> Good. <laughs> like, yeah, that was that was the catharsis I needed at the moment was to light a small piece of paper on fire and burn it. Um, there you go. Let that out. So, Get that out yeah. of your life. Yeah, you can have those feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you need that. And then, and then you can have the learning. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you light things on fire. Sometimes you light the fire inside of you. There you go. There you go. It's a balance. It's a balance. (laughs) Oh, friend, I am so grateful for you. I am so grateful for the energy you put out in the world. I love how much you encourage your female friends. Like we've, we've, you know, been friends online since we graduated. And I just, I love watching all of the cool things you're doing and encouraging you as best I can via Instagram and Twitter. When the world opens up and I can get back to LA, I can't wait to steal you away and have lunch or something. Yes. And, and, and likewise, um, you know, I'm so like always amazed, you know, I've been following your music career for years and years now. And I've just always been so impressed how, you know, you're out there and you're performing and you're releasing music and you're keeping at it. And it's, it's just been fantastic and, and hooray for artists, you know, hooray for artists who continue to make art with the world the way it is, you know, and I, you know, especially being at McDowell, there's a composer who is working on a lot of music and doing collaborations that address climate change and talking about like, can art help us address these issues because it helps save the world in time. You know, which is a question that immediately made me feel like, oh, my God. Um, but, you know, thank goodness for the artists who are who are taking this on and continuing to create art in these dire, dire times. And, and you know, that includes that includes you. To whoever's listening, I think that one thing that I hear Rachel saying over and over that I just want to highlight before I tell people where they can find you is that if you're listening and you feel like you're in a season of preparation, if you're listening and you feel like you're in a season where you feel incredibly discouraged, but you're still trying to plug away, if you feel like there's something inside of you that you need to say, if there's something inside of you that you need to create, if you feel that compulsion in any way, shape, or form, let both of us be a testament to the power of listening to that inner voice and not allowing yourself to fall prey to the notion that there's only one way to succeed as an artist or only one way to get validation or that if you don't get the validation you seek immediately, that means that what you're doing isn't valuable because it absolutely is. And what I hear you, Rachel, saying over and over is that it's just the act of perseverance, putting one foot in front of the other and keeping the content flowing, just Mm -hmm. trusting that inner artistic voice that says, let's keep making stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you so much for coming on to talk. So the novel is tentatively titled The Split Decision, but you have a story coming out in the spring. Mm -hmm. Tell everybody what the story is. It's called The Long Drop, and it's going to be coming out in an anthology called Made in L.A. I believe the release date for them right now is March 2022, but it will be available, I believe, on bookshop.org, which is the independent bookseller's website, as well as a few indie bookstores around Los Angeles. More details of that will be available as the publication date gets closer, but you can find them on social media. Um, You can find me on my website. I will definitely be shouting about it (laughs) alongside the anthology folks as that publication date gets nearer. But thank you so much, Emmeline, for having me on. It's been such a joy to talk to you um, and to have this hour of just creative discussion. It's been so wonderful. I 
know. It's so good to see your face selfishly and just so good to hear about all of the cool things you're doing. And I'm so grateful for you for taking the time to impart some of your wisdom to our listeners and just to share your experience and to sort of give validation to that idea that it's not a straight line to success. And if people want to learn more about you, if they want to follow you, the official website is the best place, right? Yes. Uh, RachelWarecki.com. Yeah. R-A-C-H-A-E-L. W-A-R-E is in Echo, C is in Charlie, K-I. Um, so yeah, extra A in the first name and then um, Polish last name, but spelled pretty phonetically, um, which is not something you can say about every Polish last name. So yeah, R-A-C-H-A-E-L-W-A-R-E-C-K-I.com. And that website has links to my social and my newsletter and all of that stuff. So again, for those listening on the radio, it is rachelwarecki.com. And that's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-W-A-R-E-C-K-I.com. E-C-K-I. And if you're listening on a podcast, we will have it linked below. All you have to do is scroll up and click and you can find Rachel on social media. You can follow her Instagram. You're also a photographer. We'll have to have you back on to talk about your photography at some point. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I do photography as well. So yeah, that's, you know, just at some point. I, I didn't get an issue I didn't get to discuss, which, you know, not time for that now, but just the also the importance is I have many creative modes. So sometimes when I'm feeling burned out and when I switch to another and photography is one of them. So that is such great advice to not limit yourself to creatively putting out one kind of product. And, and some of those are like, you know, I draw as well. And there's I mean, I'm not drawing in any capacity professionally but like that's a creative outlet that you know gives me joy without any sense of me needing to like make it commercial or or bow down to capitalism in that respect um so always helpful you know if you can to have some creative pursuit that can kind of maybe lighten your creative load at times when the writing may feel like that burden absolutely yeah to let yourself create in whatever way feels right and good to you and to not be afraid to explore to not be afraid to be a beginner mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. a genre of creativity mm-hmm. and to not be afraid to not be good yeah in all of your areas we have this rule when I, I co-write with other songwriters which is dare to suck like put out the bad yeah. idea rachelwarecki.com Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's so good to see you, my friend. And I'm I'm just so thrilled for all of the cool things you have going on. Well, thank you so much. And, and we will definitely continue to be in touch. For sure. And I'm telling you, we'll have to bring you back when the okay. short story comes online and people can read it. And maybe we'll have you do a reading. Ooh, ooh, I like that idea. I like that idea. So stay tuned to this channel. Have all a right. wonderful, wonderful day. Thanks, friend. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of Journey of an Artist featuring writer Rachel Warecki. To learn more about Rachel or to follow her creative journey, visit her official website at rachelwarecki.com. That's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-W-A-R-E-C-K-I.com. For behind-the-scenes information and more about Journey of an Artist, you can follow me, Emmeline, on social media at at Emmeline Music. That's at E-M-M-E-L-I-N-E Music. Don't forget to check out my other show, Journey of a Song, wherever you listen to podcasts. Journey of an Artist airs Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time on Deep Ellum Radio and is available as a podcast the very next day. Its sister show, Journey of a Song, airs Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on Deep Ellum Radio, and past episodes are available wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll see you next week. Until then, stay passionate.